Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Hey, everyone. Yes here, and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favor to ask. And that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends and don't forget to get in touch, guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at The Coaches Net. Once again, that's at The Coaches Net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to The Coaches Network podcast a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me this morning. Our guest today is Alex Nichols. Morning, Alex. How are you, man? Morning. Very well, thanks, Yas. You? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thank you for being with me this morning. But Alex, just before we get into the thick of it, maybe for those that aren't familiar with yourself, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there. Um, current technical specialist, um, working privately, delivering both one-to-one to one sessions, uh, small group sessions, uh, been in academy football for the last 11 years, currently at Arsenal, um, at doing the U16s as a technical specialist. Brilliant. I'm sure we'll find out a little bit more about what that, means and looks like in, in practice but um maybe just give us a brief insight where you know where did the journey start because obviously you've been coaching for, for a number of years like you said there where did you first come into contact with coaching and, and how did you know it was a journey that you wanted to kind of pursue so I first started um to really think about coaching probably about 16 17 um started to work in some schools um working for like a coaching company living after school clubs um go as, that was kind of like my first year in in college um, while I was do, doing that I was also playing still but um, by that stage I'd already recognised kind of like playing at any kind of full-time level was never going to happen so 
it was more about kind of refocusing and kind of going all out for what I considered to be the next best thing, which was to coach. So um, started, like I say, in the after school clubs, um, was fortunate enough to do my FA level one um, during my um, first year at college and my level two. Um, only a select few were, were asked to do the level two. Um, the teachers I had at the time recognised that I had keen passion to possibly go into coaching. So um, I was put onto my level two. So from a qualifications um, perspective, it started there. Um, and then once I got towards the end of college, um, with my FA level two, age of uh, 18, was then, um, then kind of took that formula, which I'd been coaching under in after school clubs, and tried to step on my own um, and then kind of started going to schools on, uh, under my own name and self-employed um, took a gap year before I went to uni and built it from there and you know I, I think it's probably similar to a lot of coaches who maybe haven't had a, an ex-professional background or, or, or you know in, in some ways anyway but you know I thought it was really interesting what you said about coaching being the next best thing now part of the reason why I've set up the podcast is because a lot of people think just that coaching is the next best thing. Um, but in reality, I think for a lot of people, it's maybe not necessarily knowing what else is out there, but understanding that they have a true passion for the game. So they think mm -hmm. it's the best thing. So maybe just, you know, just talk to, talk to us a little bit about what it was specifically for you about coaching and whether actually there was any other options at that point in time that made pursuing a career in the game or whether coaching was the only kind of viable one that was available to you, if that makes sense. Um, to be honest, uh, there's been times in my career, especially especially now, um, when looking back, um, I should have branched out and kind of looked a lot wider, in, even out, outside of football and outside of sport, um, on reflection. Um, didn't, didn't end up doing that. Football at the time and sport was the only thing I really kind of wanted to do, despite kind of getting good A-levels and, um, and eventually getting a good degree as well. Um, but I, I'll be honest with you, in terms of the, within the footballing world, I never even considered anything other than just coaching. Um, I think in part that was because so many people around me were doing it. A lot of the lecturers I had at, at, at college um, and the lead lecturer at university was, um, was coaching heavy in terms of their influences. And um, although the ideas of sports development just started at uni and sports management, they never really appealed to me. Um, and probably there wasn't at the time when you're talking about 2009, uh, when I finished my degree, yeah, uh, 2009, no, sorry, 2010, whereby the pathways weren't as trodden and there weren't as kind of as much information about the various pathways at that time. No, no I definitely, I definitely agree with you that. And obviously, you know, the state of the obvious, you obviously, you know, not you're obviously seen as a minority ethnic coach as well. So, what was that journey like for you? Know, what, what did you face in the early challenges early on that maybe on reflection you think, you know what, I can't believe I actually have to deal with that? And obviously, you know, the journey's gone on a lot since then. Did you find any struggles with that initially or in any case? I'll be brutally honest. And listen, I, I can only talk on my journey um, and not for everybody's journey. Um, I've been extremely fortunate from the day I've started to the day. Uh, to where I am literally in this present day here right here right now I've never experienced a moment a time where I felt kind of being a black coach has restricted me um, but equally at the same time I've, I've also kind of not 
I'd come from a, a train of thought where I've not also not wanted to kind of a handout, so to so to speak. It's not something I've been looked for, but I, I feel I feel like I've been on level playing field from day one, straight straightforward. And I've worked with some fantastic people who support my my journey as much as they've supported anybody's. Um, and I've always said this from from a much wider perspective. The only racism I've ever felt growing up and being younger was. Um, was as a youth, 18 to 25 in particular, but still to, the, to this day, and that's been institu institutional, um, but not as a coach in terms of my journey and pathway, not at all, at no club um, from no individual. Mm. No, that's quite interesting. Obviously, you know, we've known each other for a number of years. You know, I met you probably, I want to say maybe about, probably about 15 years ago, maybe. Right? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. um, you know, we met in an environment where, Obviously, a lot of the people that were around us were also coaching. Um, you know, Maxi probably had a massive influence on you at the time as well. And obviously, mm -hmm. eventually ended up working at Brentford with Maxi as well. I'm really interested to know, obviously, because that, that environment itself was quite dominated by ethnic coaches as well. Um, there was a lot of them in there. How do you think, how do you think that changed? Um, or how do you think that, that helped that environment? Or did you think it had any benefits in that environment? Because one of the things that we do know specifically, especially in London, we start to see a rise of more ethnic players coming through the systems and coming through the programs, and you know Brentford had a lot of them. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about how the benefit, some of the benefits of that, and some of the challenges that it, it might bring to our coaches that are not from those backgrounds. Because one of the, if, in fact, yeah, if you, if you start with that, I've got a few other questions to kind of tail onto. But you mean some of the benefits of kind of being with with other ethnic minority coaches? Yeah, did you? I mean, did you feel that that made it a bit more comfortable for you that you didn't really have to fill those other things, especially stepping into you know the quote unquote elite world of football? Um, especially yeah. at level, because in a lot of uh, it's not the uh, case, is it? I'll, I'll be honest. The the environment at Brentford before you was an ethnic minority coach, or you want to put any other label on anybody, you had to be a you had to be a good coach with the potential to be a top coach. Otherwise, you couldn't have the job. Um, and I, I thought one of Brentford's strengths on reflection was the level of diversity. Um, we had um, players coming from and coaches coming from all different backgrounds, whether that be um, kind of Spanish type of Latin kind of influences, kind of African and Caribbean um, kind of backgrounds, but also kind of English coaches and white coaches. So and we and we had a, a beautiful balance. And one thing I would always say is that despite probably one of the most diverse academies at the time, 2011, 12, 13, and 14, the time I was there, I, we never kind of, it was never something that we spoke about. We just, we just had to be the best all the time. And that was very much Oz's ethic and Oz's work, work, um, work approach. And kind of it, it had to instill in us, otherwise we couldn't have a job essentially. Um, there was a demand for us to be truly and genuinely excellent at what we did. Um, and it wasn't a case of a, a handout for black coaches or ethnic minority coaches and so on and so forth. No, definitely. No. So, you know, just, just talk to us a little bit about that. You know, so you've, you've gone and had your level two, started off your own little company, you know, self-employed and doing all your bits there. How does that move eventually come about? Um, in terms of doing my own thing, self-employed? Uh, yeah, for going from that to then eventually becoming, you know, thinking, right, I want to go down the academy pathway, work, you know, right. go and work in the pro game and whatnot. So the um, so obviously Maxi, who you spoke about earlier, Maxo Pondrombai, he was someone that was coaching me, and I'd finished college. Um, I was playing for uh, Maxi's side, and and because coaching was always something that I was interested in, already done my level two, 
I learned a lot from Max as a player, but also I was taking also kind of mental notes and kind of challenging his knowledge um, after after sessions about kind of his coaching delivery, um, what influenced it. And at the time he was at Brentford. So Max was probably my biggest influence um, and he's one of my biggest influences in, in coaching I've ever had. Um, and then so he then made the introduction, introduction um, to Brentford for me where I started working at development centres. Um, kind of recommended me as a coach, um, started out with just observing at development centres, uh, Norfolk, um, end of 2010, start of 2011, while I was still at uni my third year, um, observing, 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 um, kind of challenging people's knowledge. Um, fortunate enough, and at the time, didn't recognise it, but was working with some of the very best people in the game who were still in the game, um, Miguel Rios, um, um, was it was the um, was essentially kind of the lead scout. Um, Colin Brown kind of had had a had a influence on that development center as well. Ran the development center, um, and so I was fortunate enough to be in very very good and safe hands um, from in terms of their knowledge, but also in terms of um, the knowledge that they, they would impart on me and their and how they would share their skill set. And I, I think that's quite interesting because obviously you know we're speaking on reflection now. Um, if you had any advice or to yourself going back into that situation, what would be some of the things that maybe you look out for to identify whether you are in good or safe hands? Like you, like you think, this is a this is a massive thing, right? Yeah. Early on in the journey, yeah. a lot of coaches, especially if you go through your level one, let's look at your level two as an example. They put the action plan together, and one of the common things that you see on it is go and work, go and observe an experienced coach. But actually, mm-hmm. what does that really mean? So, you yeah. know, if you had to think back now, what, what, what would that look like in terms of you being deliberate and intentional about doing that? I think it's a fantastic question because I think observing experienced coaches isn't, isn't enough if you want to be a really true top coach. Um, first of all, is identity. Um, whether you're a recruit, whether you're a coach, there has to be a very clear identity in terms of what you are looking for and what, you, what you're not looking for. So if you're a coach that's observing somebody with a higher skill set and, and greater knowledge, you need to be looking for specifics that they are, which are essentially the cornerstones of their philosophy and methodology. Um, things that they do believe in, things that they don't believe in, and, and try to understand their rationale and justification as to why. Um, I think there's a lot of coaches now, and I and a lot of the courses that I've done in more recent times, the, the demand for detail and the demand for um, intensity and challenge of environment can often become watered down. I'm talking about on, on courses that I've been on. It can become generic and become very much about letting them play. And yes, it is about letting them play, but at the same time, there has to be parameters and the framework with which you're working within um, that you're looking to experienced coaches and experienced scouts to share with you mm-hmm. as a kind of a young aspiring coach. And, and that essentially was what um was 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 what I, I was learning all the time from Oz, from Sean O'Connor, from Miguel, and so on, you know. And I think that's a great point. The, the, the key bit is that you know I think you mentioned there about the course and I think the coach education pathway has changed so much where this is just my opinion based on my experiences now that I'm not even sure if most of the actual coach educators now even have that knowledge or have that insight around that aspect of things. Cause I, I totally agree with you, but just to kind of tail onto back to the first piece you mentioned there as well, it's about knowing that identity, but obviously we're speaking reflection after, after many years of experience, knowing that, okay, do you know what? I need to know the, this person needs to have an identity. I need to put a challenge and get their rationale justification. But and, and, 
maybe a coach who's maybe not necessarily a young coach, but a new coach with some life experience might pick up on some of those things, possibly. Mm-hmm. But someone who's maybe not as experienced as coaching or as in coaching or, or in life uh, may not have that level of thinking yet. So I guess when looking for that identity, I think everyone, even a younger coach might agree with that. What are some of the things that you think that really they should be kind of laser focusing in on? Because again, it can be very easy for a young coach or especially a young coach or a newer coach to get, get influenced by those who have been doing this for a long time, but actually <laughs> what have they been doing for a long time? And, you know, it's that, it's that old adage of, yeah, you might've been doing it for 25 years, but you've been doing the same thing for 25 years. <laughs> how, how often are you changing what you're doing? How often are you looking to evolve and develop that? Yeah. Um, and, it, and it is a challenge, right? Um, and I think, it's key for young coaches to ask questions of more experienced coaches as to what they've changed and how they've adapted throughout the years, throughout the environments that they've coached it. Um, if, if I was given my best, best knowledge and best advice to a young coach, um, detail is important, but setting the environment is even more so. Um, if you, once you set your environment in terms of, in terms of number one, it being safe, but number two, uh, and when I say safe, I mean being safe for, for the children and for the players, regardless of age, um, especially when you're working with younger ones. Um, once you've done that, the job is then to set an environment whereby, um, like I say, it goes back to the cornerstones of what you expect from a session in terms of, way that, in terms of the way you interact with the players, in terms of um, the culture that you create, in terms of them turning up early for training sessions, in terms of the intensity of the sessions, in terms of how concise you are with your information. And we're not talking about detail now. We're talking about setting the environment whereby you give the children the best opportunity to develop. Because when you set a good environment, even if you're a relatively inexperienced coach, if you set a, a positive environment, number one, the children enjoy it more. And I'm going to talk about youth development here. Number one, the children enjoy it more. And I'm, when I say children, I'm including 16 and 18s here. Number one, they enjoy it more, but also they have the best uh, environment to learn within. Now, even if your detail isn't quite up to scratch or you're still developing that, that aspect of your coaching kind of uh, delivery, that's fine. But the environment is key. Number one, they're safe. Number two, there's non-negotiables in terms of the intensity, in terms of the work ethic, in terms of players' um, and you've got you set you and sometimes you, you create your own culture right you praise when when players do things well i i use loads of players to do examples um when, once i've demoed it the best player will stop and do their demo um pl- players players feed off of off of praise players it encourages players it sets them the natural challenges everybody wants to be the player that gets praised um and so you you can you can develop the intensity of a session and the quality of a session um by having those type of kind of approaches with your methodology, praising the positive instead of stopping sessions and always praising th- things that players should have or could have done differently, you know? Uh, and I think it's a great point. I mean, just to kind of touch back on the environment piece there, really what you're saying is, you know, what I'm hearing that you're speaking is, right, just make it engaging. I think the environment, if, if it, like you said, and I want to talk about the detail piece in a second, but the, even without the detail, the first piece is if we get the sessions to be engaging for the players, like you said, they will enjoy it. But ultimately, as soon as they're in that enjoyment and engagement, engaging phase, anything becomes a lot easier for them to pick up and learn and develop from. So that, that's that, that, and I think that's a really key piece to kind of touch on. Um, in terms of the detail piece, because this is this is quite interesting for me, because you know, similar to you, 
went through qualifications old style, um, at least up to B license anyway. And then I, I think my cohort was at like the first cohort of the new A license, if you like. Mm -hmm. well, so I guess I consider myself quite fortunate to be exposed to kind of both ends of the spectrum in terms of the way that the, the coach education was delivered. But that detail piece is something that's really, really kind of, I don't want to say it's, it's disappeared because I don't think it's disappeared necessarily, but it's, def it's definitely not emphasised as much as, as it once was. Um, so it, it leaves us in a bit of a conundrum for coaches coming through now where previously, you know, myself and yourself might have been on courses and really maybe take a lot of the detail from what the tutors have maybe shared with us and exposed us to, but that doesn't happen anymore. It's almost like, well, no, you, off you go. You're on your own sort of thing now. Um, so, so, you know, what would you... What, First of all, what are your thoughts on that? Um, and second of all, what, what, what do you think maybe a coach coming through the system now can really start to focus on? Because one of the things I definitely do see when I go out and observe coaches and watch coaches work is that detail is just, maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being overcritical here, but it's almost non-existent. I, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's really hard to be a young, oh, I say young coach, uh, uh, um, an up-and-coming coach kind of learning kind of the, the, the ropes um, now because the tact has changed. I mean, I did the, I was one of the last cohorts to do the old A licence where you had to do 45 minutes, essentially a perfect session um, to pass. And we were surrounded by coaches, old heads with good knowledge, worked at different levels of the game in the, in the, um, in the field, in the environment, if you will, um, at first team level, at reserve team level, at big clubs, under 16 roles and so on. And so you you were trying to, as a, as a, as a myself, I did my A licence. I started my A licence at 23. And I was just literally, I would say nothing, but literally I would be making notes. I'd literally be con constantly trying to um, challenge their thinking, but but just listening, just drawing as much as I could from the room. And, and I was grateful at that time to be, uh, and I don't mind saying that at the age of 23, the, the person with, the, with some of the least experience, but also the least knowledge. I was sitting there with people with 40, 40 years of experience in the game. That's not to say they were excellent, but it is to say that they had unbelievable nuggets of, of, of great detail and experiences. Um, so I think it's extremely hard. That's the first thing I would say. Um, I fast forward to the Advanced Youth Award. I did my Advanced Youth Award and one, one of the, I did the technical block and when I did my technical block, um, this was fast forward. And what they've done is the, the FA had kind of got rid of a lot of their old, older coaches and brought in a lot of younger coaches, all between the ages of probably about between 40, 45 and so on. And so, yeah, it, it, it looked younger. The room was younger. But there was almost, and as I was sitting there, there was almost no, there was almost no right or wrong. And there was no, you weren't allowed to challenge anybody's thoughts. So you, you, you can sit there and say, oh, um, I, work in, I work at X club and we believe in just shelling it. That's our development model. And people say, okay, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, we missed the midfield. We didn't miss the midfield. Our, our, sec, our midfield just work on second balls and that's it. And that would be okay. And then the coach educator would then move on. Someone, and what do you do? And then someone says, oh, well, you know, we travel a philosophy, which is um, based on players that, that make great decisions. Um, sometimes it is on for the goalkeeper to clip it. And sometimes we do have to play short and kind of we're trying to get our players to be technically and tactically uh, astute and really aware. And that was great. And so there was never a point where anyone said, well, actually, what's the best way to develop the players? And so I lost my faith in it when 
at the time I was the under nine head coach at Arsenal. Um, so it's about four years ago now. And I was I was in that technical block and somebody said, um, well, you know, at eight and nine now, you um uh the, the the players know the detail. They got FIFA, they're playing games all the time, they know the detail. And I'm thinking, you're telling me that under nines and tens know the detail. Now, without sounding arrogant, I'm working with some of the best players in the country. And I'm telling you now that the players need support. The players need guidance. The players need a framework. The players need help in their own individualized way. And I and that was the that was the beginning of the end for me in terms of I could see how much the approach had changed. Yeah. And now that's not to put a slight on what the national teams were doing, because the, the national teams um, with regard to England were flying and they still are flying. And that's credit to what they do in terms of the England DNA. But I didn't necessarily always see that on the actual courses for the coaches. Yeah, no, and I, and I totally agree with you. I think there's, there's, a, there's a couple of bits in there. I think first, in terms of the national team stuff, obviously they can afford to be a bit more um, freeing with, with, with the focus on the, maybe the, the, the specific technical detail for the individual in that they're probably heavily reliant on the clubs being able to do that back in their back in their own environments and then maybe just trying to tie some pieces around that in with dna if you like um probably much more around the tactical pieces rather than the individual technical bits and but it's interesting because you know I've, I've, I've got a similar view in, in in that it was literally when i again when i did my advanced youth forward it's a technical block but how it's not really technical at all because really you know, the, the like you said it's just like well you know, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And how does everyone do everything? And then you can't really challenge it without it being a thing where, no, that's okay. Well, not actually, it's not. <laughs> and, and, and it's not, it's not specifically saying that it's not okay. Um, yeah. Specifically, I, I guess what I really want to kind of highlight there is there's a lot of coaches out there that are doing stuff that might be working and no one's arguing that it's not, but is it working as well as it could or should be? Mm -hmm. It's probably the better, better way to look at it. And, you know, I, I Again, maybe because I've been influenced by the quote-unquote old pathway in that technical detail was such a, 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 a priority that mm -hmm. now we're in my early stages, I probably would be given a lot of that technical detail. Or now it's a bit more like, yes, technical detail is important, but I don't know how much of it I need to maybe be offset into the players at, at times. Maybe it's just me maybe exploring with them right Here's the considerations I want you to make. I'm not going to give you a specific, a specific technique and the way of doing it because it might not be specific mm -hmm. right for you, and that's what my experience has shown me. However, these are some factors that we need to consider. That's mm -hmm. these are universal factors that we need to address. Now, mm -hmm. we don't need to perform it the same way as the next person here or this person there, but this is definitely something that needs to be considered within your work whether that be the way you plant your foot, the way you lean over the ball, or all these little things. There isn't a specific set position that you need to be in to do those things, but they are definitely considerations around how that impacts on your performance. And that's the piece where, you know, you're coming back to the previous question about the new coaches and how they start to pick up on these things. I don't think they're even going to be thinking on that level. I, I, I agree. And I mean, the, <clears throat> the idea for me in terms of what I deliver about in a kind of one outside privately, everything is what I would attribute to principle-based principle learning. Um, you're attempting to give players 
principles for them to attach their learning and give them a golden thread that they can reflect on. And, and you're, you're trying to make it so concise, but also so repetitive that players are able to then build the ability to autocorrect. So if you're in an environment like mine, where the language is common, it's consistent and it's concise, players are then gifted with the, with the ultimate, in my opinion, that they, are, they then have the ability to then autocorrect in game, in training sessions, away from me, away from my environment. And they and it's not oh it was a good creative turn or a poor creative turn or if it was a, it was an excellent um, split pass or it was a bad split pass it was well, these were the factors that made it great these are the principles that worked these are the principles that didn't work or could have been tweaked or could, I could have added and and this is where I, I think language becomes so important because ultimately you're, I, I believe you're trying to give a player a framework but not a structure especially when you're working uh, a technical framework um, is essential throughout but structure comes a lot later within tactical detail um, as you're getting 14, 15, 16, but you, the players need a tactical framework. Even at eight, they just need principles of the game. They don't need you run here, now you stop, now you move here. It's, it's okay. Well, the principle of the game says that we need to have a balanced player. So we need to have somebody at the back of the pit. What's that person's role? Okay, that person's role is to help us recycle the ball and switch to play. But then also if we're out of position, it gives us a good um, a good safety net because we're able to to lock lock that uh, and lock that attack in and defend and the player can defend one v one underneath the ball rather than getting countered. And so you're even that's in the four v four type form, formation. So you're you're literally trying to give players ideas about the game. You're trying to give them a framework and a principle based orientation, and then you can just add your bits of detail around those principles specific to them. Um, and then you then build your technical principles into your into your technical principles, and you show how they link. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I love that you said that because, again, this is a, th a thing where, even in, in the last kind of four or five years, I've been working a lot in the coach development side of things, and I've had the opportunity to work with and observe and support a lot of different coaches. And the, and it's not just with these coaches, but even with coaches working in the system, if you like, mm -hmm. there's not enough focus for me on the actual principles of the game now I don't know whether that's because it's not part of their club philosophy or whatever you want mm -hmm. to call it or whether they just don't have a bloody clue about how to actually get get around to doing it and, and, and I worry because I think it's the latter yeah um more than anything else and and, and for me that, that that's a massive issue because if there's anything that you should be coaching it should be around the knowledge of the principles of the game. And the principle yeah. of the game is quite simple. You're trying to get to my goal and I'm trying to stop you and vice versa. Now, mm -hmm. if everything that you're not doing is, is underpinned by that, then why are you doing it is, 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 is my real question. Yeah. Now, again, I don't think enough coaches, in my opinion, actually address that. And again, like I can say, I fear that it's because they don't even have the depth of knowledge to even contest with that thought. Yeah. And I think in order for us to, to start to, okay, first of all, let me start by saying that there's a common misconception that the level of coaching in academy football, that's cap three all the way up to cap one, is of a higher standard, because I can guarantee you that it's not. Um, I've seen some horrendous coaching um, at other clubs, uh, coaches that I've, that I've coached against, um, clubs that I've played against, and 
what we're alluding to here is that there needs to be far greater knowledge in the system because people think they're signing up when they get into an academy system. They think they're signing up for a real high level kind of experience and rightly so because they're going to a professional football club um, which is which should be run from top to bottom in that way, professionalised. Now, the problem is that it's not. The problem is that it's not. And <clears throat> if you want your coaches, and obviously, listen, we know that academy football is made up of part-time, predominantly, and full-time coaches. So in, in, in most clubs, there will be a one full-timer for two age groups and maybe two or three part-timers. Just, if you're talking about account one. Just to add to that as well, it's also important to highlight that there's a lot of fantastic coaches out there who just simply can't work in academies because majority of academies don't pay well. And, and this is where I'm getting to. This is exactly where I'm getting to. So people think that the best coaching and best practice inside the building and at some of the, the big cat ones, yes. I worked at a cat two in Brentford where yes, without a doubt. But you, it, that literally is taken from club to club and coach to coach. And so if we want our part-time staff at, at professional clubs to have fantastic knowledge and really commit more time to it, you have to start paying them well. So I, when I left Brentford, um, I'd been at Brentford for four years. I was 24 and I went to Watford. Um, yeah, 24 and I went to Watford. And I, I, I was doing the 11 and 12s at Brentford and I was doing the 15s at Watford. I... And I was paid, I'll tell you what, I, what the job role was first. I used to coach um, an hour and, I think it was an hour and a half, between an hour and a half and two hour sessions. I think it was actually two hour sessions. Um, and obviously that includes driving time, because um, obviously you finish your, your full-time job and you get across to the um, training ground and then not to mention the drive back. So you sacrifice your entire evening. And you paid, and I was getting paid £25. And I'm work, meant to be working with, with some outstanding players, players that, that are at times international players, players who, who you're hoping to play into the first team in at U15, sometimes in three years. And they're putting somebody around them that they're paying £25. Now, I know pay, the pay structure has changed at that club, but it's changed at many other clubs, but it's still nowhere near where it needs to be. Because if you want people to attribute that and access that higher level of knowledge and, um, and apply more hours to it, you have to pay them accordingly. And it will drive standards across the board. And then what I find most often now, and listen, especially at the Cat Ones, there's some outstanding full-timers, ex-pros, outstanding full-time coaches, full-time coaches that have gone the kind of journey to, that I have. And some of them are very, very, very good friends. But I also know there's a lot of people out there who are part-time members of staff and or come out of the academy all together because of the pay. And they're outstanding. They, they might have... Have, have five, 10, 15 years of, of coaching experience, but they don't stay in the system. And it's a massive shame because you think that, that or you know that, these, that there's clubs out there that would be grateful to have these top level coaches. And so the question is now becoming, are the best coaches always in academy football? And I'm not talking about cat ones, I'm talking about cat three to cat one, you know, the full spectrum of it. And I think it's a great point. I think just to highlight there, you know, there's two questions that really come up for me. And, it, you know, there is no right or wrong answer here. But I think, I guess on one hand, the club's probably thinking, well, although they'll use this in the, in, I guess, in their pursuit of coaches is that, well, if you want to be here, then this is, this is what it is. You have to be passionate. 
and what all of that stuff. They'll come with that kind of vibe. But then on the flip side, I think is the other side of it is, and I'm sure you've probably seen this the first time and probably even experienced it, where you've got another coach alongside you, or in, in not necessarily alongside you as in working with you specifically, but you're both qualified to the same standard, and that's what sets the pay scale rather than mm-hmm. looking at the individual and say, right, how much impact are they having in this in this in this environment? Yes, there yeah. might be a uh, if you like a base rate that we might have to pay everyone because that's just the, the landscape that we're working in. But actually, <laughs> how many coaches are actually getting then then getting paid based on the value they're bringing, as opposed to the club just saying that this is what we're paying everyone? Does that make sense? Yeah, a blanket. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I think I think it doesn't matter how you dress it up, whether it's your top member of staff and your most your longest longest serving member of staff and your best coach, or or the opposite, I think we can all agree that £25 for an entire evening for somebody to coach um, U15s, 16s, 14s, even U9, it doesn't really matter the age, but the bottom line is that you're developing what's meant to be potential elite players. Um, that 20, We can agree that £25 just is, isn't going to cut it. I remember going to Norwich away and driving and getting paid £25. And that needs to say I would have done £25 in diesel. But just just on that, but I think, don't you think part of the issue is is that there's always going to be someone that's going to take the twenty five pound. Yeah, because because and, and, and this is, this is where the clubs win, right? Because yeah. there's there's more there's far 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 more supply than there is demand for academy coaches, right? And listen, I'm not so arrogant or ignorant to to think that everybody wants to be in academy football, um, but at the same time, there are a lot of people that want to be part of it. There are a lot of people that want to attach their name to a brand. There's a lot of people that want to work with what's considered to be outstanding or elite players. And I, and I was one of them. You were one of them. And as long as the supply is there, that's fantastic. We are always replaceable, always. But, and they can, they can re- replace people with another body easily. However, the, the, the moral question is, is are all the clubs, and there are some, I'm not saying all the clubs, are many of the clubs approaching the, the um, the situation with an understanding and a an appreciation for the quality of the coach that they may have lost and how hard it is to then access somebody with that same level of quality um, and 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 this is the thing no, nobody wants high turnover of staff in any business especially in an environment where you're where you're you're based off of cycles the, the academy joins a ten year cycle you want people to be in your club that know the players inside out. And in my experience, the best cat ones, um, one of which I'm fortunate enough to work at, um, retain, retain their staff. And, and when you retain your staff for a long period of time, you, you build a stronger culture, you build um, better relationships across um, multidisciplinary teams, you build um, more experience working within your specific environment, you evolve together, and there's more cohesion. Mm. But it's the job of of the clubs to start remunerating the, the coaches appropriately. And until that happens, you will forever get a high turnover, st- turnover of staff, especially at Cat 3 and Cat 2. And by the way, I'm making sweeping generalizations here on Cat 3 and Cat 2 clubs because it happens at Cat 1 clubs. And also there are some, I, I came from Brentford and we retained our staff very, very well. But I think, I think a large part of that is as well in, in, in that balance is that if, you, if you're going to pay me less, that's not the end of the world. But I need to be getting something in return. I need to be knowing that this is going to be an environment that's going to stretch, challenge, and develop me to the point where, by the time I'm where I need to be with that, 
I can then go somewhere where, and, and command what I need to command from it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. I think that's a really key piece. But let's, let's talk about it, because obviously, you know, you've gone from Brentford to Watford. Talk a little bit about about, about your time at Watford and maybe, maybe some of the biggest things that you picked up in comparison to the environment that you had at Brentford, because obviously Brentford, you said, was quite intense. It was, it was it was exceptionally high standards that were expected of the coaches to kind of be the best. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not the best, it's what they're, they're getting close and striving towards that anyway. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, what was that like when you transitioned to Watford? Um, you know, because I've also I've also worked at Watford as well, so I've got a bit of insight around the club itself. And you know, it's, it'll be interesting to kind of get your views on that. So the when I went to when I went to Watford, I started doing the 15s, and um, I was fortunate enough to know some of the people at the club already. I was fortunate enough to know, um, I was working with Carl Martin, who was the head coach um, for the 15s. And I'd known Carl for about, at the time, I'd known him for about good, nearly 10 years. So it helped. Um, I had good relationships with, with other good coaches, Louis Lancaster and so on, um, Dominic Haynes. So I was in an environment where I had other asp- aspiring coaches, good quality coaches striving to be better. The environment per se, in terms of what it was dictated, well, how it was how it was dictated from senior management, um, was slightly more relaxed or significantly more relaxed. It's probably more accurate compared to what I was at Brentford. Now, Brentford, in my opinion, is the most intense environment that I've ever worked in. Um, and it is hard for me to com- compare that to anything else that another person's even spoke, spoke of to me. It was a, a unique, unique environment and unique time. Um, but the, the laid back um, approach at Watford allowed me to experiment more. So I was working with an old age group, we're doing much more level aside, much more phase of play type, type work. And so I was able to experiment with um, different types of sessions, different ideas. Um, I was able to take risks. If the session wasn't working, I was able to, to tweak and challenge it uh, or change it, should I say. Um, so it gave me a lot of creative license. It gave me a lot of freedom. Um, and so for as relaxed as it was for the players, I say relaxed as it was for the players, it, was, it didn't have the same intensity to it. It didn't have the, necessarily the same high standards at the time. I'm not saying that's Watford now. I'm talking about at the time that I was there. Essentially, it gave me the opportunity to experiment with other good coaches and, and actually really start to... Sometimes we would, we would experiment um, together. So sometimes, um, I think Louis had just got the um, individual kind of role. He was working with all the individuals from 12 to 16. And so we would kind of um, discuss kind of sessions that he was delivering. Um, and he was he, very often he'd have a new session that he, would, that he would set up for the first time that day. He'd planned it, he'd arranged it, he'd been thinking about it, and he would try something new. And I think it was a case where as much as the players were learning, the the coaches were so driven to learn themselves and, and kind of self-motivated, we got some kind of a different type of return from being in that environment. And I, I, think, it's a, I think that's a great thing as well, because obviously, even if the environment itself in terms of the club structure and, and the organisational structure isn't giving you that, that challenge and stretch of development, having those right people around you where someone, you know, you can bounce off and they don't have to be thinking like you, but even having someone who's completely- Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The opposite to you. In fact, mm-hmm. I've had similar situations like that. And I think one thing that needs to be kind of really highlighted is just how beneficial collaborative coaching can become. And collaborative coaching doesn't mean you have to work in the same way either. Mm-hmm. But there is a collective goal. We're agreed yes. on the goal. We don't have to agree on the methods in which we get, which we choose to kind of get to that point. And I think that's the beauty of it as well, because there is no right way necessarily. Um, well, and, and, this, and that was very much the methodology of Brentford. We used to, we didn't, even though we had our set age group that we'd coach on a weekend, we wouldn't necessarily have the same age group across the course of the week. Because um, it gave players an opportunity to be coached by different players with a slightly different approach. And although, like I say, the, the objective was still the same and the expectations were still the same, the the way we'd, we, we would approach it would be very, would be very different. And um, that gave the players the best opportunity to kind of build strong relationships with, with various coaches and adapt to different different styles, you know? No, definitely. I think that's a ma- massive, massive thing to do as well. Just, you know, so let's, let's talk about this. You've, you know, you've spent a couple of years at Brentford. Um, obviously, the academy eventually shut down there. Moved over to Watford. Um, yeah. How does the role at Arsenal come about? You know what, what happens? Yeah. You mentioned so Brent, Brentford, Brentford closed down as I was actually leaving Watford. So I'd left Brentford long before it had, um, long before that it was close to closing down. So I think it was another two seasons so that I'd been at Watford, and I got uh, I'd worked with somebody called um, Joe Sutton at um, at Brentford. Now, when I was at Brentford, he was bringing teams in from he was from Oxford, and he'd bring teams in to play against um, some of our academy players. So I had the under 11s the academy group at Brentford. And we, he would bring in some like, a talented group of under 12s. Um, who weren't necessarily in academy football, but we'd play against each other. And so we'd chat and so on and so forth. And anyway, Joe was was at Brentford for a short while, but then he moved on to work at Arsenal, predominantly in the soccer schools. He then kind of got the role as head of um, the pre-academy. And he, he called me and said, listen, um, like, we've got a role. Would you like to apply for it? Because um, obviously we, we, we'd worked together and I'd coached against him many times. And he said, would you like to, to apply for it? And I said, I said yeah, sure. So um, I ended up applying for it, um, ended up getting the job. Um, and I was back with Joe, who I'd worked with previously, and also Bucky, um, Dan, Danny Buck, who I'd worked with at Brentford the, the entire time I was there. Um, and so we kind of headed up the, the U8. Joe oversaw the whole thing as the full-timer. And um, me and Bucky were the lead coaches, if you will, for the U, for the U8s. Um, and, and it kind of went from there. And then as I started, uh, first first two, first two season, did the under-8s. Uh, fantastic experience working with top, top players. But as using all the experience that I came from Brentford working in the pre-academy, um, it's as much about recruitment as what it is about coaching when you're working with the U8s and U7s. Um, so it's about building relationships, right? It's, it's about 
um, getting to know the parents as well as what you do the players and so on and so forth and understand kind of family dynamics and culture and so on. So you, you kind of fully immerse from the moment you start. Um, and then it, it's kind of gone from there. So I think I'm going to my seventh season now at Arsenal um, and went on to do the eights and the twelves the following season. So I was doing the U12s um, and at the time working at the club every day. So when the U12s weren't in, the U8s were, so I was doing both. Um, then was given the head coach of the U9s role the following season, um, which, was a, which was a real significant thing for me. To, when you're only part-time, generally speaking, you're always the assistant. Um, to be trusted as a part-timer, with, to, head, to be the head coach of a, such a, a sensitive age group, U9s, their first academy experience was a, a real privilege for me and an honour. Uh, to be trusted by the club and by the <clears throat> senior leadership um, at the time um, with that role. And much of the senior leadership still there, to be fair, is pretty much the same. And then um, it went from U9s. Um, that was a great experience. So I was working with the group that I knew very well from the U8 season. I already coached them there. Um, then following season U14, um, who were incidentally the U12s that I had two seasons back, um, then stayed with that group U14. U15 uh, the following season and then moved again with them to U16 the season that we've just had so that's um, that's been the journey so far um, and within that I've been extremely fortunate to work with what I believe some of the, some of the best players in the, in, in, in the country and some in Europe yeah. um, some tremendously talented groups but it's been an, an experience which has which has broadened my my level of detail, challenged and stretched my level of detail, but then also um, provided me with so much, so many opportunities to reflect on the way that I develop and deliver for, especially for, for more creative 1v1 players, unorthodox players, mm. and challenge my abil ability to develop them. Um, obviously, technical spec is my technical um, execution is my specialism um, at the club, but it's given me um, it's given me plenty of opportunity to reflect on how I develop and deliver that. So let's just talk about that because you know you talked there about it being your specialism at the club. What, what does that actually look like as a you know technical specialist? Because you know you were seeing more and more of a um, an increase in the number of clubs or number of environments or are, are employing people in a similar at least job title anyway. But what does it look like on a day to day on the grass? Yeah, so um, the the structure is very much around kind of a, a mixture of, and especially at 16, because the, the job, although it, it's technical execution, it's technical execution very much um, uh, attached to player-specific position. Um, so, for example, um, one day we'll have um, generic ball mastery, um, whereby it may be skill combinations, it may be uh, plenty of repetition of reverse passes, round the corner passes, um, and so you're you're honing on on unorthodox techniques, wrapped passes. You're honing on really unorthodox techniques, which are the things that make the top players the top players. Um, and that that will be done and executed within a a practice which will range from unopposed to semi-opposed to fully opposed. Mm. Um, but then it's essential that players get maximum repetition. But then on there'll be other days where it will be. Um, linked whereby 
Uh, it may be about centre midfield relationships, for example, still about the technical execution of the scanning, the ability to receive, um, the direction of passes, and also the direction, the direction of the, of the next movement. But you hone in very much on the execution of the pass or the execution of the turn and how that will then affect the, 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 the team with a, with a element of, I wouldn't say tactical, but game insight kind of principles. Sure. So, we, we, you know, just to kind of... Uh maybe help, help listeners understand, would, would it be fair to say that your role is essentially to assess the player's position and identify what are some of the maybe valuable tools in that area of the field and help, yeah. help them in developing uh, the ability to use those skills? Um, and then obviously, yeah. uh, in some case, then linking that into how they then apply that in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're, you're when, when you're working in the foundation phase and, it's, and even going to the 12th and 3rd, 13, 14, you're just trying to ensure that the player's technical toolbox is as wide and as varied as possible. Um, when you're getting to 15, 14, 15, 16, they start to have an identification as to what skills that they prefer to use. And then it, and what's crazy is that it almost links back to the principles. So, okay, if, a, if, a player, if you're working with a winger and, they're, and they're, um, their favourite skill is a double step over or a single step over or a reverse step over, whatever it may be, you, you should, and especially with me having worked with the group for three years or four years out of the last five, it's been my job essentially to ensure, number one, they had the, the, the width of the technical toolbox to execute most things. And that still requires refinement. That still requires regular practice. But then also the job is to, well, okay, if your favourite skill is a double step over and that's what you think you're the best at, how can we make you world-class at it? Because mm. that's what it's going to take to be able to play in the Premier League, right? I, I, I think, yeah, definitely spot. And I think really what you're saying is, right, We've, 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 we've tried to give you a wider toolbox from early on to give you a range of different things that you can kind of try out and see what works for you. And then as we go through the ages and stages, now we're going to say, right, which ones are working best for you and let's make you super, super skilled at doing those ones. So, you know, very basic example. I don't know if this was the approach that was, that was taken with it, but, uh, you know, probably one of the best examples in football that I can certainly think of is probably, you know, Arjen Robin. We know what he's going to do every single time he does it, but he's so highly skilled at doing it that even even, even the best defenders still find it hard to stop it happening. You know, he's yeah. always going to go to the outside. He's going to shift you off off the right, you know, off, onto your onto your off balance from right to left. Then he's going to cut inside, and that's it. And yeah. you know what's going to happen. But the thing is, if you give him the space on the outside, he'll beat you there. But if you don't, if and if you compensate for that, then he's, he's going to beat you inside as well. So <laughs> you're kind of left in a bit of a conundrum. So I think, it, uh, you know, really what you're saying is, right, we're going to make you super skilled and we're going to give you specific skill sets and make you specialists at doing those things, which I think is fantastic. But again, a lot of that comes back down to understanding the detail that is required to make those things happen. The timing, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the little intricate bits around actually half a, half an inch on this shoulder as opposed to, you know, half an inch on this side, well, is actually going to create massive amounts of space for you as a result because that's going to be the difference. Those little inches there are going to be a difference that's going to take a defender off balance or not. And I think you know that that bit doesn't really get highlighted as much anymore. Um, so you know, you, you, looking at your role now, then and your previous experiences, what would you say is some of the biggest things? If you had to kind of narrow it down to maybe one or two things, or even three, that you think, right? You know what? If I could go back and I had this insight based on my own experiences now, I know that this would definitely accelerate my coaching from early on. Um, 
it's a hard one because I think there's certain things that you just have to go through the process to become excellent. But if I was being super critical, I would say the first one is developing dribblers when I was at Brentford. Um, I think I could have been better at developing dribblers. And that comes from more assurances in your own coaching methodology and, co and coaching competency, um, especially my first two years. Um, that would definitely be one. And I, I still stand by that developing dribblers is, is, is an extremely hard challenge simply because you're trying to provide so much significant freedom, but also link it to principles. But then, and, and the learning the value of silence when coaching dribblers in particular is key. Um, it's something which I really think I've got far better at at Watford. We've got some very good dribblers there, um, but then also um, even better, even more so at, at Arsenal. Um, the ability to reflect was something which I was really poor at in my early days at Brentford. Um, not reflect after the session in terms of how I'd coached, but what I couldn't do, <laughs> I was so obsessed with getting my session right in terms of structure, in terms of environment, in terms of uh, detail that I was trying to add in, that I would struggle to assess the players. So that was something I really struggled with, especially in the first two years at Brentford. I would I would do a session uh, in the development centre, go back into um, go, go back in, have a debrief, and literally I couldn't even name a player that was in my session, <laughs> which was pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, I was, it just showed how how I was actually concentrating on the players. And I think that's that's one of the biggest skills. Um, and then also one thing that I would, that I think would would accelerate my coaching. Um, So I think those two are probably the, the, the ones that I would um, that I would stand by. Mm. So you know, obviously, you know, in those experiences, and I, I think I think they're, they're two really key ones, by the way. But in the in your experience, obviously, you've come across not just against, but working with many different coaches along the journey. What would you, who, who would you say is some of your major influence? Obviously, you know, you talked briefly about Maxi earlier. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, Maxi at um, at Brentford, without a doubt, Oz. Ozzy Abanji, Sean O'Connor from a recruitment perspective, um, with Miguel Rios. Um, when I was at Watford, um, working with Carl, shared a lot of experiences of, of him as an ex-pro, ex um, shared some great insight with me about kind of little kind of fine things that he did as a centre-back, um, which I, I really appreciate and took on. Uh, Louis Lancaster uh, at Watford, at Arsenal, um, um, it's been working with Bucky, some probably the person that I've worked with the most. Um, so Bucky's been significant. I worked with Bucky at eights, worked with Bucky at at sixteens um, at as well. So I've worked with him three seasons out of the last six that I've coached at, at, at um, Arsenal. So two with the younger ones and one with at sixteen. Um, and 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 Bucky's somebody with. If I'm a unicorn with eleven years of, of of part-time experience. Bucky's double that because he's far older than me. I won't say his age, but far older than me and, and he's got lots of experience at different clubs. So um, he's always a good person to talk to. And uh, probably Adam Birchall, who, um, who, I, who I work with now, who shares a lot of his experiences 
as a player came coming through Arsenal, but also somebody who is um, who was an ex-pro. Mm. So he came through Arsenal's academy and had a career in the game uh, as a pro. So um, so I've had a real nice balance, and I've had some fantastic people that I've worked with. You know, obviously you mentioned quite a few names there. What would you say if you know if you had to? What would you say is the biggest lessons you've learned from them? And I know there's probably going to be loads of things that you've picked up. If you say, right, do you know what, actually? The biggest lessons I've learned from them. Um, Per has been probably one of the biggest. Um, Per simply because he puts so much emphasis on the on the person as an individual, as a human, as a child, as opposed to a footballer, which is something that I was always doing. But when you hear somebody that's won the World Cup saying it, we've had countless conversations about that and around that. Um, that's per is like probably someone who's influenced a lot, a lot of the kind of the, the central points of, of probably because of the whole academy, to be fair. Uh, but I probably learned the most from my peers. Um, Ollie Hinkson, Josh Hinkson, Josh is the 12s coach, full-timer at, at Arsenal, um, head coach. Ollie Hinkson, um, top coach. Um, who, and we kind of came up together, Nathan Thomas, um, at Sunderland now. Um, they are they're three of my closest friends in, in football um, and we, we talk on a I mean me and Ollie will talk on a daily basis and we'll, we'll all talk on a weekly basis um, in terms of the what we've learned in terms of our reflections in terms of and sometimes we'll have conversation about experiences which we all experience but then we talk about how often we perceive them one way when we were in the situation but then we look back and perceive it in a totally different way six, seven, eight, nine, ten years on you know um, so they're probably the people that I've learned the, the, the most from in terms of that constant and consistent self-reflection. And it's very hard to explain Brentford to somebody unless she was there. And me being so close with them, they're friends for life. And me being so close with them also helps me on, on, on my journey, you know? No, I definitely get that. And I think yeah, you're, you're right. It's something that you mentioned earlier. I think some things that you just have to experience and before you can really appreciate how important they really are. Um, so you know, just just on that, you know, we've, we've talked about some of your learnings there. You know, I'm really keen now. You know, interesting to find out maybe what some of your bugbears are in coaching. I mean, you've been in coaching for a long time. You've worked it, like you said, not just in in grassroots, but you're working in in the academy space for a long time now as well. And rightly said that just because they're working in academies doesn't necessarily mean a standard of coaching is great. So you know, what what are some of the things you look at? You think oh, I can't believe that's even happening. Um. Goodness me. Um, in academy football, sort of academy football first, academy football, people overcomplicating formations when they get to 12 and 13. Um, that's a big bugbear for me. And onwards, onwards to 15, 16 and so on, overcomplicating tactics, overcomplicating formations um, and not, not executing formations for the well-being or the benefit of your players and arguably your best players, but for the almost the arrogance of the coach. That's a big one. Um, one thing I, I, I personally, and this is a personal um, observation, is players, U, U12s playing 11-a-side football, strongly, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it at all. I'm not even, um, if, if it was up to me, I would argue that U13 football, I would like to see players at, played at 9-a-side. Um, they've got their entire career to play 11-a-side football. It limits their amounts of touches. Players very often at U12 don't have the physical capabilities to execute what they see. Um, so the combination of less touches and, and not being able to execute them and do more running than touches on the ball 
is something which which I can't get my head around. Um, but yeah, if it was up to me in my in my ideal, and this is my own personal approach, um, I I would have nine football for youth teams. I I just think you increase the amount of time they touch the ball, you increase their game understanding, and then you and and that extra year of and multiply that across across the number of sessions they'll do, or play play that in course of in terms of the times that they'll be on the ball and around the ball as opposed to away from the ball when you're nine aside compared to 11 aside, it's significant. So you want players to, to get used to making runs because they're around the ball or on the ball because um, they've got their entire, they've got their, the rest of their careers to get used to being away from the ball. Um, and, and listen, being away from the ball, you've got to be able to affect the game with your away, away from the ball movement. Um, but I, I just think that that could come at a slightly later time. Um, and it gives players more touches and more decisions. Because you want to maximise that, you know, and I think change, a, a slight change in that kind of approach would enable that. Um, they're probably my biggest bugbears in the academy football at the moment. Yeah. Um, in uh, outside of academy football, biggest buzz bugbears, um, social media. It's the it is one of the greatest things. And it's one of the worst things at the same time. The greatest thing is that it's deregulated. The worst thing is that it's deregulated. Um, you can literally say what you want. People lying about, about what clubs they've worked at. People lying about what ages they've coached. People lying about their qualifications. People lying about um, what they deliver. People claim to deliver elite sessions. Never worked in an elite environment in their life. People delivering elite sessions. Never never coached in academy football, people delivering elite sessions um, and don't have the elite qualifications. Uh, they might have elite players at their session, for sure, or outstanding players, but doesn't mean it's an elite coaching session. And I think sometimes the value of, 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 the, of the coach at times, people are starting to appreciate the quality of coaching now. We're getting to a stage where everybody does extras that we're in a kind of one outside of it. Great. But I think slowly parent, and this comes down to parent education, right? And it, it, I, I, I at times feel sorry for parents because there, there's not enough independent kind of information to guide parents on, in terms of how they're choosing coaches, ensuring that they're number one, DBS checked, number two, um, qualified, number three, how can you check that they're experienced? Um, and so it's the whole package of this elite thing. Um, I would consider myself an, an elite coach in very close to youth development because um, of the places I've worked, the players I've coached, but also the value I've added. And that's the big one, the value that I believe in that I've been told that I've added by seniors, by parents, by players themselves. Um, but there's that's probably the, the, the biggest bugbear of mine in grassroots football and um, anything outside academy football, you know? Alice, and obviously, I think, you know, I think what, what you said there is really key because there is a lot of coaches who are claiming to be elite coaches, um, never worked in elite environments, probably don't even know what elite actually is. And I think a really, really important piece that you've touched on there is and it's not just for parents. I think it's even for players, to be honest with you, that might be seeking the external support themselves in understanding 
what effective coaching actually looks like. And a lot of this is down to education. A lot of this down to just own personal experiences for parents, maybe around what they perceive to be good coaching. Um, mm -hmm. And I think where a lot of people get mistaken is there's a coach who's going to put you through a bunch of different drills. And I say drills because they are drills and not practices. Yeah. Um, going to make sure that you just, you know, you, there's, there's no emphasis on any of the detail. There's no emphasis. You know, so I'm going to show you what I want you to do and I want you to now do it. Um, if it breaks down, we're just going to keep trying to do it until it, until it works. And life doesn't mm -hmm. work, especially in coaching. Um, so I think there's that piece of it. And because they've maybe seem to have been working hard, then they believe that there's been an effective session. Yes. But you can't, you can't necessarily blame the parents or the players. You have to blame the coach. But even then, I don't think you can always blame the coach either because they might not even be aware that there is, a, there is a, such, a, a, such a massive landscape of what coaching and effective coaching actually should, should look like. Um, not to say that there's one way that it should look. However, I totally agree about the piece about the parents because parents with the right intentions they want to support their child or support you know whether that be young young boy young young girl in getting better getting that extra provision but maybe don't mm -hmm. understand what they need to look out for and then i think the other challenge there is where it makes it so difficult is uh, the financial side of it right because there's going to be some coaches out there who know they can probably make a quick buck because this mm -hmm. parent hasn't got a bloody clue about what they're actually paying for mm -hmm. um, and they're more interested in trying to make the money than make an impact um, which again, you know, just kind of just blows the whole kind of uh, market out of out of the water a little bit because it's got some coaches. I'm I'm seeing certain coaches who charge, you know, in excess of a hundred pound an hour. I'm thinking I would not even pay a hundred pound for ten of your sessions, let alone one. But because they can get away with doing it, they're going to continue doing it. And because the parent hasn't been hasn't been exposed to anything that probably might be worth a hundred pound an hour. They know yeah. the message, you know what I mean? And I think that's the yeah. other piece. And, and that 100%. I mean, I get, I mean, I've, I've always said, listen, I'm, I've never been one to talk about players and what players earn. If you understand how hard it is to be a, an outstanding Premier League player, you understand that a small percentage of the players earn the money and they rightly get it because what they do is extremely challenging, despite the fact that it appears to be easy from the, the fans' perspective. And it's the same with coaching. So I'm, I'm not somebody who, oh no, this should be the ceiling price and this isn't charge what you want, but provide an appropriate service within that range and provide a service which is, which is reflective of what you are charging. And that's the big issue. But then the, the, the significant one is that I get, I get a lot of messages from, from um, coaches who say, um, yeah, I'm building my business and building my, my coaching methodology. So, and they'll, and they'll have a, a name like something elite or elite this or ballers this. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, you're building your coaching methodology and your business. So they're two different things. I, I had a coaching methodology in, in place of stronger in, in place of, after four years at Brentford. I never even started delivering until I was three years in at Brentford, uh, at Arsenal, sorry. Now, arguably, I could have built my business far earlier with regard to this. So I already had a business, but um, more school-related and so on. Um, but I always get concerned when people advertise their business as being this outstanding product, 
yet they are they see it as them building their methodology at the same time as them building their business and for me there has to be one before the other because if you're truly elite I, 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 I'm, it's not a word that I'm necessarily afraid of and I know it gets a lot of bad press because of the yards that I know that I've done and the environment I've been in and the 11 seasons that I've done going into, into 12. So the quality of your ability and your, the effectiveness of you as a coach has to come be the priority. Build the business after. Just concentrate on being able to help the players. And genuinely help the players. And then uh, one other bugbear that I haven't mentioned is the is the whole ladders and the parachutes on six and seven and eight year olds. And me and the um, the, um, the head of our kind of our strength and conditioning program at, at Arsenal, we have a, we we talk about this all the time. And and he just can't for the life and understand that you've got nine year olds doing weights and kind of with poor form and and it, it, it's this lack of education yeah. which. I feel I'm concerned for players' welfare. Yeah, I'm also concerned for parents because I know they wouldn't want to risk their life or, sorry, the life. They wouldn't want to risk the, the well-being of their children. They wouldn't want to risk the well-being, but they don't know any better. They don't know any better. And I think that's part of the issue because the coaches will do those sorts of things and the, it will get the parent and the, even the player in some cases think, yeah, we're doing something that's, ex, you know, that's unique and out of this world. And it's like, no, you're actually doing something that's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's got nothing to do with anything that you need to be doing right now. And I think that's, that, 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 that's, that's the key piece there. And I think it's, it's so important that coaches... Anyone, you know, if you're listening to this, even and you are one of those coaches who want to be doing one to one sessions and small group sessions and whatever, ask yourself, why should someone come to you? Mm. Don't let that be because your prices are cheaper, be because you're more impactful. Then, you know, then the follow on from that is ask yourself, how can I be more impactful? I, and I, I think the the off the back of that. What I would also say, I have clients who pre-academy and words get thrown about, right? Uh, U6, U7, U8 training at, at pre-academies and um, different clubs. And they ask kind of recruiters and they ask development, development centre coaches, kind of what, what does my son need to work at? And people and I, I, parents have come back to me and fed, fed this back to me and said, you know, the, the, the coach at this development centre or that club or this place, he needs to be a bit stronger. Stronger? He's seven years old. We need to lock him in the gym. Forget, forget being strong, making the best decision maker, making technically the best so that they, they're able, they've got the execution abilities to eliminate players in a variety of ways and that they, they, that they see the game so well that they can make those type of decisions and have the ability to execute it. You need to get stronger. You've just got to be the best decision maker. And you've got to have the coordination. You've got to have the, the balance. You've got to have the ability to pivot to, to move efficiently. You've got to be effective at seven. You've got to be consistent with your movement patterns. You, you know, it, and that I think is what sometimes starts the, the, is the prelude to the going to people to do strength training at eight and nine. So I don't, I, I definitely don't blame the parent. I definitely don't, definitely obviously not the children. It's sometimes the clubs have to be careful in terms of the image that they're feeding back. I've never in my life been back to a, a parent of any age, especially seven, eight, nine, ten, regarding a player's strength or, or, or qualities in terms of um, their ability to outpower uh, a, um, a, a, an, an opposition. 
because it's something that's developing at all times, but it's also something that, that can't necessarily be, be trained at such young ages. So help them with the controllables, control the controllables and help them be the best decision. Maker. If you're playing on a pitch where people are quicker or maybe stronger than you, be the best decision maker. It didn't work badly for Bernardo Silva, for David Silva, for Luka Modric, you know? So that's, that's what you've got to do. No, 100%. And I think the part of being the best decision maker is understanding your capabilities, your attributes and that in that comparison to whatever the situation you might be in. So one of the key things I look at within the way I work is if I'm looking at a player, it's no longer right. I want you to do things in this way. Is actually let's unpack the context. What is the situation that we're actually in? Yes, you're five foot five. You're against a six foot two player. What does that mean for you? Yeah. What kind of six foot two player are you against? Are you against someone who's actually six foot two and built, or six yeah. foot two slim, but as quick as a you know as quick as a, a cheetah or whatever you want to call it? You know what I mean, so really, it's about the context and understanding. All right, with context, we can start making better decisions. At least theoretically we should be able yeah. to and and, it, and what I find is through the years when you coach the player as well the I don't even want to say under match rate but the slightly smaller players but the or the slightly smaller players or the um, or the players who aren't necessarily the strongest or the quickest player on the pitch when you coach them well you you, you're they are constantly in an environment where they are honing that specific skill because they know if any they, if they try and achieve success any other way but outrunning somebody they, they turn the ball over but it's a great environment for them to learn how to dribble on the safe side it's a great environment for them to learn how to how to change direction simultaneously whilst getting the player off balance it's a great opportunity for them to recognize that they're not going to beat someone with the kick and run straight line speed Gareth Bale they're going to have to change direction so you develop their technical execution to help them change direction you develop their movement patterns and balance to change direction you help them to pivot so they are the most efficient version of themselves so when they're older they become the most effective version of themselves and when you get to 14 15 16 and on i often find this that the the, the physically um smaller players or those who aren't necessarily the strongest or most powerful end up finding it easier to play against older players because they 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 don't ever have to change their game. The players who, who rely heavily on physicality and strength, which are, when I say physicality, let me be more specific, um, acceleration, power, strength to hold off players, um, and straight line speed, or, or speed to change direction, those players, if they dominate with such physical attributes, but don't necessarily have the technique or the game insight, when they play against physically older players or stronger players, or when they make the progressions to 18, uh, uh, 23s or first team football, they often can find it more difficult because they haven't done the groundwork of the actual game. Because at some stage you meet somebody that's as strong as you. You meet somebody that's as fast as you. You meet somebody that has the same level of power as you or does have the acceleration that you have. And then you have to have, then it comes back to the technical toolbox that you built at the foundation phase. Well, can you change direction better than them? Can you do you have the the um, the disguise with your execution? Do you have the ability to get your hips and shoulders to move the player off balance and then go and eliminate? You know, and so the game will end, end up coming back full circle. But the players who have, who have played against those type of players throughout their their playing career in the, in the academy level age groups or youth age groups in grassroots football, the players who have been coached well when they might have to play up an, an age group or they, when it goes to a double age bracket, they often don't struggle because 
they were already playing against physically dominant players. They just they just have to continue to play their game and dominate with their game insight and technical execution. So yeah. the game never changes for those. And it actually gets easier because as they get to 15, 16, and they've been in the gym and they've done it in the right way for the players in the academy football, we'll be doing it from, from 12 with the correct form and so on. And when the muscle mass does start to come in at 16 and 18, the game gets easier for those players as opposed to getting harder for the yeah. ones who've relied solely on physical attributes. A hundred percent, because they, I guess it, in their process, they've 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 had to become more adaptable and, and and use a range of different skill sets to try and get some success where possible. So I guess naturally over time they start to become a lot more attuned to what's working, what's not working, but more specifically why and why it's not working. Um, so you know, coming back to yourself a little bit, then you know you, you've had quite an extensive journey already and I, and, I, and I wished for that to continue for many more years and, 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 you, and you go on to do whatever it is that you want to do next which is my next question what is next Alex Nichols? Um, within um, my, my business outside um, continue to develop as many players as possible develop new, new platforms um, take, the, take myself across the globe internationally not just to the USA where I've been recently I uh, did a great camp in Charlotte, literally like two weeks, um, a week ago. Um, out there for two weeks, met some fantastic players from MLS clubs. And I want to kind of share with, with players in, uh, across Europe, but also across in different continents. Um, I want to get an understanding for culture, but also be able to develop programs and platforms, both online and face-to-face, whereby I can affect, develop and improve as many players as possible. Um, in terms of my role in academy football, I've loved being. I've always loved being part time. I've, I've, when I when I first started at, at Brentford's development centre, unpaid for six months, and observing coaches and picking up picking up cones and that. If somebody said in eleven years' time they're going to be um, technical specialist and assistant assistant sixteens coach at Arsenal, like that's the dream. So uh, to an extent, a certain extent with regard to the level of player that I'm coaching, the environment I'm coaching, I'm, I already feel like I'm living that, that dream. Um, and it is, it's, a, it's an environment and a place where you always feel privileged to be in. Um, and it's a privilege to also coach under the pressure of, of developing players at that level and to the level where, they're, where the players aspire to be, as well as the club and as well as the coaches, you know. Um, so in short, spread the word educate more parents um develop further players both in and outside of academy football um and help as many players to understand the the context of the game and what development football looks like as opposed to outcome football um that's the uh that's the ultimate aim i love that i love that so i guess you know just you know as we look to wrap up then you know there's been a lot of things I think that have, have come up in this conversation, a lot of insights, a lot of nuggets. I think people um, hopefully will have you know, latched onto, if, if, not, if not yet, then they will when they listen back to this again. Um, but you know, if I was to give you 60 seconds now and say, right, Alex, you go back to the start of your journey as a coach. With everything that you know now, what's one golden nugget that you'd want to you'd you'd leave yourself with if you could do it all over? Fifty seconds to go. <laughs> Network as much as possible. 
and ask as many questions as possible from the best possible people, not from everybody. So just a quick follow up on that. What's one question you think you've asked in your journey that you thought, you know what, the answer to that question was just phenomenal? I can't give you the answer, um, but the best question I think I probably asked is to prioritise what discipline and what aspect at what stage of player development. So what was the priority at what stage? Um, which is a very complex answer in itself, but recognising understanding what seven and eights need as opposed to 11 and 12, as opposed to 15 and 16, having been on that journey myself and coached across all of those ages, across three different clubs, across, three, across many different philosophies, is what has kind of given me a real insight and a, and a clear vision in terms of what it should look like at each age. Awesome, awesome. Alex, I want to you know, thank you again. It's been a fascinating conversation and hopefully there's been some things that have come up for you that maybe you haven't even thought about in a while as well. Um, and I'm sure that you know, for anyone that's actually listened to this internally, they would have picked up some real key pieces. And if they haven't, then obviously there might be an opportunity for them to potentially contact you, get directly in touch with you. If there isn't, mm -hmm. would you mind sharing that? Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, get in contact with me. Uh, Instagram is um, at coach underscore alex n um on twitter it's at coach underscore alex n exactly the same as the instagram on facebook it's at coach alex n all one word no underscore um and alternatively you can email me at alex at coach alex n dot co dot uk awesome well alex it's been a fascinating conversation i really thank you again for your time this morning um Good luck, man, and I hope, hope, hope the journey just keeps flourishing as it has been, man. Thank you, Yas. Appreciate it. Cheers, man. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.